Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Tentacoli is over. Watch your damn babies. Each year, 10,000 tourists visit Ocean Beach. 
this summer Ocean Beach has attracted something else. American International presents tentacles. It slept until man disturbed it. Then it woke with a fury no man could control, rising from the ocean floor to bring destruction and death. Tentacles. A chilling tale of nature gone wild as two of the sea's deadliest enemies fight to the death. Andy, this is very serious. Very serious. I feel like we are we've moved into a new series now and we have we are looking out for the people. And so for the people, what do, would you recommend is the very best way for them as they plan their beach going to learn more about the horrors that may befall them thanks to the creatures of the deep? That's absolutely true. I, I'm glad you brought this up. They should absolutely go to Instagram.com slash the next reel. They can look at our posts all about what sort of creatures may be lurking in the waters, and uh, they can better be prepared for when they plan those trips. How to watch, you know, putting their baby carriages right on the edge of a, a 10-foot mm-hmm. drop to the, to the sea, or letting your young children go out in a sailing race. Compared to suckers on a tentacle, Andy, claws are nothing. <laughs> that is so true. The, the things you learn, the things you learn, Pete, from watching these movies <laughs> and reading about them on our Instagram posts. You might wonder if you are a follower of the show after our series. Uh, you know, we just finished our our foreign film series. We did a foreign film. Best Pictures, which was extraordinary, fantastic. Lots, uh, a of, lot of, lots of, of great films good, to talk about there, yeah. A lot of great films to talk about. Um, even before that, you know, we were doing some fantastic comedies in the form of Friday. Nah, that probably doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we did do some great Cary Grant, some great Francis Weber. And so if you are a, an eagle-eyed follower, you might look at our upcoming series and say, what the hell? <laughs> Uh, tentacles uh, brings us into the world of aquatic killers. Aquatic killers, yes. Uh, and, you know, Jaws would have been uh, in this list if we hadn't already covered it on our... Oh, on it's our, going in the list. Richard D. Zanuck yeah. series. Oh, absolutely. No, it, it'll definitely be tagged oh, yeah. as such when yeah. people search for it <laughs> on our website. It is absolutely in aquatic killers. And if nothing else, it will help lift this list up a little bit in, uh, in esteem. But, you, you know... We are playing the averages with this series right <laughs> here. It, that is for sure. But here's the thing. You know, you know, we're cinephiles. We love watching movies. And sometimes you're watching movies that, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it, there are things about it that are definitely worth talking about. Um, and uh, this is... I, I love animal attack movies. I love creature films. It's just I love all those. I, there's something really uh, kind of it can be kind of lame and and trashy about those movies, but I find them really entertaining as kind of a genre. You know, I think that it can be a lot of fun. And in this particular series, we're looking specifically at aquatic killers, specifically at real animals, not you know fictional underwater yeah, creatures beasts, of the sea, yeah, like right. you know giant mutated things like Godzilla sorts of things, like sweetheart or, or sweetheart. Exactly, we're not looking for those sorts of creatures. These are actual animals they just might be a little abnormally sized and that's really really the the or, extent or just really angry 
or just right? really maybe angry. they're normally sized but just angrier than the average yeah we'll have so to keep track of know. that as we go through the series which ones were sized larger than normal and which ones were just just pissed off about something because i don't remember you know we do when when you talk about something like piranha that was just a regular size batch of piranhas right or were they like signed i don't even remember we'll find out now. next week Ugh. Spoiler. That's right. All right. That's well, right. we are in fact talking about tentacle, uh, which is tentacles. A, um, there's more than one P. There's more than. You're right. Already, you <laughs> say the sequel to Tentacle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a uh, a ripoff in so many ways uh, off the success of Jaws, and um, and so we should talk about it as such. Uh, I will start by saying, Andy. Uh, it's a dumb movie, and there's all kinds of problems in here. And I still, as you say, I had a pretty good time watching this ridiculous movie. Well, and that's, I guess that's the thing with ripoffs, is like, there, there's got to be something in it that is still somewhat appealing. This has a lot of issues. Like, we're going to talk about a lot of the issues yeah. that this film certainly has. It's made by a filmmaker and a team of um, uh, collaborators who I don't think have a good grasp of the art of cinema. I also think that they picked a particular uh, ripoff for their Jaws clone that was really difficult to actually pull off in many ways. I think that, you know, when you're doing an octopus, having actual, like, the ability to have tentacles, like, coming up and wrapping around things would really help. And the fact that we really don't ever get that was a real, real letdown. Um, but there's there are a lot of just kind of odd elements with the way that the production went, where I almost feel like this is appealing in ways where, you know, it might be because I'm just laughing at the film itself. Um, and, you know, so I guess I guess that's the challenge when you're making a ripoff is the, does it need to be something that's more than just what uh, than they were trying to do like, or trying to rip off? You know, is there still art yeah. in something like this? And uh, this this is definitely a sum of its parts movie. And the movie itself is less than the sum of its parts. And I think part of it is, as you're watching the film, you get a real visceral sense that they took elements from Jaws practically took the film, cut it up into little pieces and put them in a hat and just made sure there were no pieces left over in the hat by the end of the film. <laughs> it is a grab bag of of Jaws beats uh, that are stitched back together. And in the process, you find that there are many movies in here, many. This would have been the perfect pitch to Quibi, uh, you know, because it's got these little 10 minute segments and then miraculously they're just gone. Uh, and the movie changes gears again and again and again. Individually, these little isolated bits, there is something about, you know, the the exercise of constraint, something we celebrated highly with Jaws about not being able to see the creature for a long time and um, letting your the, the, that feeling of suspense build and using uh, depth of field to do interesting things with, um, you know, to build uh, fear. Uh, you know, I think there are, there are some individual elements that that do work. When you put them all together, it's so slapdash that there's it just doesn't feel like a story. Cap it all with a uh, our our hero, our Quint figure, who is a dingbat. Well. I don't know if he's a dingbat, but 
he talks to his his orcas. <laughs> I think okay. I, I think a- agree to agree. I think he just thinks he's Aquaman. <laughs> is, is the thing? That's it. That's it. That's it. And and so I I just struggle with that that whole thing. But you know there are things in this film, weirdly. That work. I actually think the open of the film, besides the taxi and the mysterious figure who's wandering the beachside that we're supposed to think about. Yeah, what was that? Um, yeah, I don't understand that. But I think the rest of the movie, the open, the kind of setup of the people disappearing is, uh, you know, it's suspenseful. That's what I remember from watching this when I was a kid. I think this was on TV or something like that. And that image of the baby on the on kind of that drop to the ocean and the octopus taking it has stuck with me. That's the only thing that has stuck with me. And I do find it incredibly effective still. The way that uh, the director uh, shot it, the way that the scene kind of plays out, I think works quite well. And to that end, it's like, you know, you're starting off the film with an infanticide, which is like, that's pretty bold. That's a quite yeah. a, a a big way to start the film. You know, like in, thing, we've talked about this in other things, like you're talking about serenity, things like that, where somebody dies and you're like oh okay well nothing's safe here if this is if this yeah. is how this film is starting off with a baby getting killed you're like nobody's safe this is going to take us places and to that end the film fails because it never lives up to that initial moment where the baby gets taken i thought that was such yeah. a strong moment and then also it's really disappointing that it never really leads to anything story-wise there's no story element about them talking to the mother or anything it just it, it's left and it's brought up to the point where in the script you know we find out at the beginning that the mom is talking about it's her son billy and later when the sheriff is talking they're talking about the little girl i'm like did they were they paying attention when they wrote this script i know they, there were they don't actually writers. know that yeah <laughs> they weren't sure Exactly. If it was a boy questions. or a girl. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's crazy. But also John Houston is in it and Shelley Winters and they fall prey, <laughs> I think, to the same kind of slapdash, like fall off the face of the earth uh, story resolution uh, in this movie. I, I do want to say to the baby thing, it is you're right. And I feel that same way until I stop and think, what else is going on on that rocky hot those hot rocks? on the waterfront like it was a crowded busy clear day and sure there's a baby up there but you're telling me that no one else saw this octopus slapping its fleshy body up those rocks these tentacles slapping up the rocks to get the baby nobody saw that as it <laughs> goes back into like nobody saw that so it's great but it's Super like Spielbergian, you know, like whatever is not in the camera, we don't need to care about. And so, you know, well, we let it be. But I can't handle the slapping octopus thing. I mean, that's like, you know, you're you're going back to like something like it came from beneath the sea, the uh, Ray mm -hmm. Harryhausen special effects with the octopus, the giant octopus that was 1955. Yes. That was like. You see that thing, those tentacles come coiling up out of the water and everything. And that's what you were hoping for, is that we'd see some stuff like that. Or that the people on the beach would at least have seen something like that. Uh, of course, Maybe we a don't. scream of a bystander. Yeah, I mean, something, right? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to hear that someone noticed. Well, the universe we set up is unreliable. Well, considering how much people pay attention to things going on in the water, it makes perfect sense. Like when we have the regatta, like the boat race that happens later in the yeah. film... 
everybody on the shore is just watching a clown. Like they're just like, yeah. they're not paying attention to what's going on with the boats. They're and that's just, another extraordinary massacre, right? I mean, well, that was, that's, that's, I wish it was amazing. a massacre. I, I real. I mean, I as sad as that is to say, but I'm like that they, it felt like they were doing something really interesting there by having this, this big octopus take out all the boats. I was like, well, this is great. Every yeah. boat got taken out and then the boats come in and all the kids are on them all except one. But one. And I was like, well, that's a disappointment. I really wish. Like this, this giant octopus was just like only so hungry. It's eaten everything else. Yeah. But but it doesn't eat all the sweet meat that has just fallen into the water. And it's just it's just going around and knocking boats over then. It's like, I, yeah. I don't even really get it. Because later when it's attacking boats, like it's attacking boats. It is like yeah, wrapping right. itself around them, crushing the boats, you know, pulling people under. I mean, it's a it's a much uh, more grand a way to attack these things. So I, I almost feel like in the case of the regatta, it's just going around with its tentacles and just like tipping them over yeah. and laughing at the bling, kids. Bling, <laughs> bling, bling, bling. It's like <laughs> ping ball, ping ball. Uh, and, and I think that's absolutely true. And this goes exactly back to your point about the, the infanticide in the beginning. Like you want to do something bold, kill all the kids now. Yes. That's a le- way to level up from, from what we And have. from Jaws too, like really level it up. Say that octopus, it just killed everybody. Yeah. What are you going to do, Jaws 2? Yeah. Right. If we're talking about things we like, I also want to talk about the music. I actually really like <laughs> the music in this film. It has this 70s Italian thing going on that is just fantastic. It is wonderful. I just love it. But it just, it really is not designed for this film. <laughs> I should no. like separate it out. I would listen to it all the time because it's really fun. It's energetic. There's something really interesting about it. It just doesn't work. It's no John Williams. It's playful. It's 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 way way, and to to that end, maybe it does work if the film is trying to be playful. Except you're killing kids and killing babies. It's like I don't know. I don't know what the tone of the film is. Are we being playful? Although we've established not enough kids. Okay. Good. At least we know where we stand. I mean, we do have uh, Hopkins talking to his his orcas later in the film. So I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's just by the time we get to the end, I feel like they they realized, you know, I think we are trying to be playful here. Let's, <laughs> let's have him have a heart to heart with his whales. It does have a real Star Trek Voyage Home kind of vibe to it. It's got like, something. he's got him in that tank. I, I almost yeah. wouldn't have been surprised if he jumped into Mind Melt with Yes. Them. Yeah. No, I would love some interior tank shots of him with two orcas who've been cooped up in this thing. Like, <laughs> it was not great. Um, I I think they actually, you made a point about the tentacles not uh, being really available at the sort of like sophistication that you would want them as a filmmaker. And I have to say, I think they actually did a pretty good job considering 1977, considering, you know, absence of technology that we've come to uh, experience as sort of standard. Um, I found what they ended up using of real octopus footage and um, I think it, it actually worked pretty well. Yeah, no, it does. And actually, like, there are some nice creature shots under, like, deep under, like, looking straight up as the shape of the octopus wraps itself around a boat. Like, there were some moments like that that was like, you know, that actually is quite effective. It's just you want to cut from that to now a shot on the boat with eight tentacles kind of wrapping around it. You know, that's that's what you really want. And you don't have it. And and that's, I think, a real disappointment is and uh, apparently they built 
a creature that they could use. But I don't know. I've heard multiple stories. I heard one that they couldn't, the tentacles didn't work to actually do the things they wanted it to do. And it just looked kind of silly. And two, it was so heavy. That sounds familiar. Yeah, right. And two, it was so heavy that when they put it in the water, it just sank and they couldn't retrieve it. Which, which <laughs> I almost believe that. <laughs> you try stuff. You got to try right. stuff. That's right. All right. So, um, so they, I, they ended up yeah. relying a lot on the point of view monster cam shots. And then they built what basically is the octopus eyes, like looking out of the water. And then they would mm-hmm. use it like Jaws, like Finn, where the octopus eyes were just charging through the water at things. And I thought that was, I was like, eh, I don't think that's how octopuses work. No, <laughs> it's not how octopuses work. And you should go watch the Octopus Teacher documentary right now and you'll discover that in fact they don't act like submarines or speedboats or any of the things <laughs> the sort of metaphors vehicle metaphor that we've that we have playing out in this movie it's not great um okay so on to things that <laughs> i feel like we're transitioning things that don't work <laughs> in tentacles um so we we've already mentioned the oh, elusive uh taxi scene is there a reason i'm assuming that this is John Huston's character, and he is somehow, or or I guess it could be Fonda. Well, that's the right? thing; it's never identified, and it because it's never identified, it's just like you don't know. Like, there's nothing about that opening shot that tells you who it is. It's just, it's almost like the director uh, wanted to. This is, uh, I mean, the English name is Oliver Hellman, but it's actually the Egyptian-born Greek director Ovidio Astonitis. Uh, who directed this. So it's almost like he saw something cool in another movie and said, oh, I'm going to do it that way, where we start on the ocean, but then we pan and reveal we're in a taxi. And then we watch a mysterious figure get out, forgetting that the reason you do that is because that person is relevant to the story and it's a mystery. And when you reveal (laughs) it, it's like, oh, this is who I've been following. But no, like we follow this person, they get out, and then all of a sudden, we're like now focused on the woman and her baby on the on the edge of the bluff. And it's just it's I, I just couldn't figure it out. I don't know. I just it felt like he was just trying to come up with something creative, but really ended up putting something in that just make you makes you ask more questions. It's very much uh, like he's it, the, we're supposed to somehow follow the pants. And <laughs> and I don't I, I don't as a as a measure of success of a film, I don't count like following the pants is a thing that, that um, we're, we're counting on. Um, and this leads to this discussion of why John Huston first uh, is in this movie. What is he doing in this movie? How about Shelley Winters and Claude Aikens? Like these people, uh, Henry Fonda yeah. shows up in this movie. You wonder if like there is some sort of hostage situation going on that gets them to sign on to this. This is definitely sounds like one of those movies that was pitched to be something that it did not turn out to be. Well, and to that end, you know, some of these people were at a point in their careers where they were popping up at a lot of this schlock anyway. So yeah. I guess to that end, it's like, you know, it probably was just another paycheck. I mean, Henry Fonda in this window of time was also in Roller Coaster, The Swarm, yep. and Meteor. Uh, just this year, Shelley Winters was in uh, Pete's Dragon, Black Journal, which actually I enjoy quite a bit, and An Average Little Man. And three of those, all but Pete's Dragon, a uh, 
are Italian productions. John Huston was in, uh, you know, some lower end films, uh, you know, I, and so I, it's almost like uh, Claude Aikens. I think he was more of a TV guy, but I mean, Battle for the Planet of the Apes was what he did right mm-hmm. before this or a few years before this. And, you know, that was kind of the tail end of that franchise and a little schlockier. Um, you know, Bo Hopkins is the one who I think had been in more interesting films and had more stuff going for him than these others who certainly had bigger names earlier. But at this point, we're kind of just taking these paycheck movies. I think John Huston largely did it so that he could then direct the little films that he wanted to do because he does. Um, what's the film that he did a few years after this? Wise Blood, I believe. So mm-hmm. yeah. this is the um, this is the 1977 equivalent of uh, De Niro in War with Grandpa. <laughs> War on Grandpa. <laughs> I'm killing Grandpa. Like it kind of starts to feel that way. It's not. This is not the first. Yeah, uh, well, this it, sort of. Yeah, agreement. it's. It, is it like that, or is it like you know all the things that Nicolas Cage is doing? <laughs> career (laughs) right right i don't know Uh, it just does make me wonder though what they're up to uh shelly winters they make her mom to a young boy and all and i don't get it well she and john houston are brother and sister john houston which is weird yeah because he's he's 71 and she's 57 and i think that doesn't she say you're my little brother or something at some point something like what i recall yeah and so they're very kind of it's all backward um she has a kid who is maybe 10 uh, you know maybe somewhere in that range 10 12 uh young a young kid but she's still talking about her son and his friend with his problem with why does he wee wee so much like he's four i don't fully understand that um and she wears wow i wrote down in my note wow shelly's hat (laughs) yeah yeah her lunch hat Serious, very serious hat. Well, and to that point, you know, um, Houston wandering around in his nightgown, <laughs> uh, <giant>. which was <laughs> flamboyant. He's got he's a tall drink of water, John Houston. So you put that thing on him and he's a he's a boat sail. All of the choices were odd. And it just made me yeah. wonder, were the actors just kind of picking their own things out of the out of the costume bucket? Oh, this would be a fun thing to throw on. Feels like it. Was yeah. Well, and, and Shirley Winters. Like she she moves to and this this gets to one of the one of the sort of central like derailings of the movie for me, which we've already talked about the rally or the uh, regatta where the kids mostly survived, except for the kids she was babysitting, which I think was the wrong choice. I think she should have lost her kid and the other kid gets, you know. Well, saved. yeah, it's a weird choice. Very weird. It was a weird choice all around. But uh, noted, we also think all the kids should have been killed. So. um <laughs> Uh, but then there's no resolution to her at all. Yeah, there's no right. right. We don't. That's it. We never come back to her, and we never really come back to John either. He's gone. Yeah, they're done they from the gone. story. As and, soon as the regatta is over, and yeah, there's there. Well, her son, his nephew, is safe, and they are mourning over Jamie. That's kind of the last we see of them. In the parallel to Jaws, right? We don't have a Brody character going along, right? That that would have been Houston, I think, uh, as sort of the well, I would investigative argue, Brody character getting I, on the boat. I would say maybe he would be the uh, the Richard Dreyfus character because sheriff the sheriff technically should be the Brody character, right? Mm-hmm. Except he also is Literally. completely yeah. ineffective and does nothing in the story. Like, he seems to be investigating, trying to figure out what's happening, and that there's this corporate 
you know, problem that's happening. And then that whole story becomes nothing. And we don't see, I can't even remember the last time we saw Claude Aiken's uh, character in the film. Right. Was it Claude at the Aiken's... regatta? Was he there when the kids were yes, coming he back? Was on the, he was on the deck, on the, the pier as the kids were coming back. And that I, think, that I think also was the last time we saw him. So here we have this parallel. The things that worked well in Jaws, they chose not to to follow through on, right? They chose not to put these characters that um, have any sort of uh, kind of fish-out-of-water sensitivity to one another um, to give us that experience of them working together. Instead, we have now an expert, the the shark expert, which who should have been the Dreyfus character, right? The, yeah. the guy who talks to, yep. talks to his whales. He's from the Ocean Institute. Uh, and we bring in his buddy, Gene Shorts. <laughs> and we put him uh, in, in there, too. So now we have the two experts on a boat together, and we we don't care about them at all because the characters that we've been with for the last 45 minutes are not even in the movie anymore. I, I would say Hopkins, we've been with him like we have seen him. Uh, his character, Will Gleason, and his wife. Uh, and, and we know that he has some backstory where he had the bends and it created this whole thing. And now he's got this fear mm-hmm. of going underwater. And then, which is why he sends two other guys at one point in the film, film and they're the ones who get killed. And now he's guilty, but his wife is afraid that he's going to go out. So she goes out after him and she gets killed and her sister gets killed. And now he's just like... Um, you know, feels like he has to go stop this octopus. So we see some of him, but yeah, his friend pops up out of nowhere and all of a sudden is like, it's the two of them as they go out on this mission. What worked with Jaws is that there was the expert, uh, the fisherman, the Quint character, and there were people who, there was a guy who knows kind of what he's doing and a guy who doesn't know anything at all. And that that's what made that script work, is that they did not have a shared level of expertise. And this movie, the entire sort of atta- attack on the octopus, doesn't work because their expertise is too high. And once they're thrown into the water, like once they're all geared up with their special with all their equipment and their spear guns, they're completely out of the picture because the orcas end up doing all the, the work yeah. anyway, and they get they get you know uh, trapped in a rock slide. Exactly. Yeah. And by that point, it became. And I mean, this was how the whole film was like. Who's my protagonist here? Is it? Yes. Is yeah. John Houston the protagonist? It seems like he is. He's trying to figure out this whole corporate issue going on with Henry Fonda and his company. That, which makes no sense to me. They're building a tunnel like under the bay. I, I, like from one side to the other, I couldn't figure right. out what. Okay, that seems kind of odd. Maybe that is a thing, but they're using technology that you know is so out there that I what what did they say something like that even Buck Rogers had never even heard of it or something like that. I love that. Nothing like dating your film, right? <laughs> right. And so it's but it's like what are they doing? So John Houston seems like I'm going to be the guy who solves this and figures it out, and maybe I'm going to be working with the sheriff, and we're going to figure this out together. We're going to bring in this expert. And that's what you're saying is like, we we kind of start setting this thing up where it's going to be this trio of people. And who knows, in the process of ripoffs, and maybe, uh, you know, Asinitis was kind of realized this, we can't make it too similar, or we could be in legal hot water. Because I, I know that is a thing that happened to a number of ripoffs. Oh, you mean like, yeah, if we bring in too many of the parallels, if we bring in Brody and yeah. Dreyfus and yeah, then we right. end up... Then it just becomes copy. a straight up ripoff. Well, and and it turns out that's the stuff that doesn't work. <laughs> like by not going all in, uh, that's where it doesn't work. And so it's, it's actually, I, I think it's too bad. Uh, 
because somewhere in here, controversial opinion, Andy, there's a good movie in here somewhere. And uh, I think there is even a good movie in here somewhere that doesn't have to necessarily copy all the beats from Jaws. Uh, it can still be a good creature feature, um, you know, a, a, a creature attack from the sea movie um, that actually does something unique. But this movie didn't apparently aspire to that, I don't think so. Well, to that end, maybe we should make sure we put on next time we do something like this. It came from beneath the sea so that we can compare yeah. that one. I, I feel like, yeah. I don't know, the images of that one make it look like the, a, an octopus of ridiculous scale that's that's a kind of nonsensical. But from what I read uh, about it, because I thought it, it talked about kind of the whole nuclear thing. And I said, OK, maybe it was radiated or something and it enlarged and made it this ridiculous size. But it sounds like it actually just came from beneath the sea because mm -hmm. they had been testing bombs in the bottom of the ocean. And so it was just this giant octopus living at the bottom of the sea. Yeah. Um, it still seems well, a little and that's not the first time. Like we've got all yeah. kinds of stories like that. Megalodon is another one, which is the same thing. Like we've, we've, yeah. we, man, it did some things that were dumb, and that broke some sort of a, a environmental barrier. And now giant creatures are up that were living there all along. We're not going to make any pretense that they. We just didn't know where they were. So, um, like, there's room for a story like that, uh, which is great and can be a lot of fun. Do you know, Pete? what the biggest octopus that has been documented is? Yes, three million pounds. <laughs> and it almost, it's called the planet eater. And we all almost, we How might not know? be here today. We're actually we're riding for the, the entire <laughs> continent is its, <laughs> is its back. It's octopodes all the way down, man. That's right, that's right. <laughs> I don't. Tell no, me the largest it. known specimen uh, is a giant Pacific octopus, and the largest of those has measured 30 feet in length and weighed 600 pounds. Man, I was close. <laughs> so you were pretty close. Uh, yeah, they, they found it washed ashore on the coast of British Columbia, Canada. Um, so that's, that's much bigger than the average size, which is usually about 17 feet in length, 150 to 175 pounds. But they think, they speculate that it could actually grow up to potentially a thousand pounds uh, with a size of 45 to 50 feet in length. Um, they just, it hasn't been documented yet. So, um, that's a pretty big, pretty big octopus. You'd think it would maybe put up as much of a fight as the one in this movie did against those two puppet orcas. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, I know. I, I, I may be a little hard on that, but it, that that final that final tug of war was tough. I don't think you can be too hard on it. Apparently, and this no. is the kind of the sad thing they they got they bought a dead octopus from a, a like an aquarium or something like that, and then they actually <laughs> used these puppets to I guess they kind of tear it apart. And it's kind of horrible to think about that they were actually doing that, but that's that is how they uh, achieved that ending. Those puppets. Oh wow, that uh, was that was a rough ending. It was rough, and those. Uh, the orcas that now have a taste for blood are following the <laughs> boat wherever it goes, apparently to Africa. That was such a and that was like what? Okay, so now we're you're doing, an oceanographer, is, man. <laughs> I'm going to go on a safari. Let's just sail away. I'm like, did we just like watch Casablanca right before we wrote this? We like, did. Let's, we did. Uh, just going back to the science and octo, uh, octopi, this was in other, another interesting thing, especially since the film is called Tentacles. I didn't know this, but an octopus actually does not have tentacles. Those are called arms. 
arms. In the cephalopods, the tentacle is the one that has an extended sucker-tipped feeding arm. That is the actual tentacle. So a squid has eight arms and two tentacles. Those are the ones with the, like the big pads, and they'll wrap yeah. around like the sperm whales and stuff. Those are called the Wait tentacles. Wait a minute. So those, hold on just a minute. Are you telling me that those tentacles, they actually... They can ingest food through those tentacles? No, 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 no. They're their feeding arms. They grab those and they have like and little hands. And that's what they bring them to and, their right, mouths. And they use them. I mean, I think that's what all the rest of the arms are for anyway, right? That's kind of what I thought they I, were. I thought like, that if they this all is the only difference. Yeah, that's that's that, the difference. Apparently, that's what it, the tentacle itself is. So so I guess I guess if we were watching 20,000 Leagues Beneath the Sea, then yes, we could we would be having more very different conversation. be talking about tentacles. Okay, these are arms. Eight arms. arms. Yes. And the movie is now a complete lie. <laughs> it doesn't work as well if they call it arms. <laughs> That's a great point. It loses, <laughs> it loses a little drama. Bit of, a little bit of the, its energy there. Arms, 1977 <laughs> with John Houston. No, you're right. It doesn't play. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about getting it. You want to talk a little bit more about uh, Ovidio Asinitis? He's an interesting filmmaker. He is one of these people who kind of made a career of with distributing kind of low-end films. Like, I think he started as a kind of a distributor in the 60s where he would go around the world and find a bunch of films in, I think, mostly in the kind of the um, Southeast Asia uh, finding a, a just a variety of films that he could distribute around the world and eventually started working uh, with American International Pictures. And in his time there, that's that's where he started kind of working with their team and ended up making Beyond the Door, which is basically <laughs> the, the Italian title is Who Are You?, uh, but the American title is Beyond the Door, and it basically was exactly what this is, except it was the ripoff of uh, The Exorcist. That film, and, and th that is one where where uh, Warner Brothers sued them, uh, claiming copyright infringement, and they, uh, I think it took them like five years to settle the claim there. But, you know, when you're in the business for those sorts of films, I imagine you're going to be up against the wall dealing with that quite a bit, and why should you let those little things stop you from making other things? So he made that one and immediately jumped into this one because of the success of Jaws. And uh, I think... I think his career went on to do quite a few things like that, including a follow-up to another Jaws ripoff, Piranha 2, The Spawning, which he worked on with James Cameron before kind of taking it over from James Cameron. And there's a lot of interesting things about that, how James Cameron was fired, and then he would sneak into the editing bay at night through a window and make all the changes to what the editors had done uh, the day before because he was trying to at least make something decent out of it. Strange story, strange story. Wow. But in the process of all that, I, I did want to talk a little bit about American Internet, American International Pictures, the company that did release this. Uh, it was an interesting company that started in the 50s, largely kind of doing a lot of these low-budget projects, working with Roger Corman, things like that. A lot of kind of the low-end genre films, westerns, sci-fi, crime stories, horror films, etc., etc., and uh, over time, uh, Samuel Z. Arkoff was one of the people 
that was a part of the company along with, oh, I'm losing his name. It was uh, uh, James H. Nicholson was the other one. The two of them worked on all this. And Arkoff had a formula that he called the Arkoff formula. Uh, very clever of him. It stood for action, revolution, killing, oratory, fantasy, and fornication. Those were his ideas for a movie. It had to include those. Um, <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, action, exciting or entertaining drama. Revolution, a novel or controversial themes and ideas. Killing, a modicum of violence. Oratory, notable dialogue and speeches. Fantasy, acted out fantasies common to the audience. And fornication, sex appeal for young adults. And later, he devised something, or his publicity department devised what they had a strategy called the Peter Pan syndrome that had four points to it. A, a younger child will watch anything an older child will watch. B, an older child will not watch anything that a younger child will watch. C, a girl will watch anything a boy will watch. And D, a boy will not watch anything a girl will watch. Therefore, to catch your greatest audience, you zero in on the 19-year-old male. That is amazing and gross. I feel like that a lot of Hollywood kind of pulled off of that and, and said, you know what? That sounds good. Let's go with that. Was he ever in trouble? This was the he was in trouble with Piranha 2. Is that what you said? Oh, uh, well, Ovidio Asinaitis uh, was he, he wasn't in trouble with Piranha 2 so much as in the process of making Piranha 2. He and James Cameron had issues and they fired James Cameron. Um, but the company itself did start falling apart. They were actually really successful. 1971, I think, yeah. was the peak. They had like 31 films released that year. And actually, they were considered one of the most stable companies in Hollywood because they'd make things for such low budgets. And they generally were turning profits on them. Um, and it it uh, was... It was real strong through the early 70s, but then James H. Nicholson, he ended up resigning and then very shortly after dying from, I think, brain cancer or something horrible. And so Arkoff started kind of shifting the the direction. He went a lot more mainstream, focused on projects with bigger budgets, things like the Amityville Horror, Love at First Bite. And the budgets kept growing, and it really kind of, uh, through the late 70s, it, they, he started doing some bigger budget ones. And by the time, in 79, he did a film, Meteor, which I already mentioned had Henry Fonda in it. Um, that was, it was a big budget, and it just didn't make its money, and that kind of pushed them to the brink. Same time, Nicholson's um, a widowed wife, who is also a major shareholder, she sued for mismanagement. They bought her out, and then he kind of ended up selling the film to Filmways Incorporated because um, he just it was kind of hitting this point where it was just being mismanaged and they were spending too much on their movies at that point. And then he ended up getting unhappy and left. And now AIP slash Filmways ended up going to Orion, which is uh, with MGM now, and that's kind of where it sits. This is what I'm trying to wrap my head around, because what we're talking about are riding the line, I think, between legitimate filmmaking and like the mockbuster trend, right? The yeah. the films that are turned out from the asylum, right? Uh, Braver, Tangled Up, uh, you know, these <laughs> these movies like Little Cars, like movies that are that, that do actually strive to deceive the audience so that they think that that they're watching something that they are not. Um, and 
um, you know, I, I was just looking up Warner Brothers history with this stuff. And, and they're, I mean, obviously their cases are legend, but the biggest one most recently was over The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, which Warner Brothers owns the exclusive rights to, to, uh, to make and distribute. And the asylum made Age of the Hobbits. <laughs> And and their their Nielsen report says over 25% of the people who actually uh, watched Age of the Hobbits thought they were watching uh, a real uh, Hobbit, the real Hobbit film. So, you know, uh, it's gross stuff. But this is gets back to our ripoff conversation, which is like how at, at what point do you feel deceived versus entertained? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I guess, I, I guess as a film goer who pays attention to what I'm looking at, I, I don't feel like I've ever been deceived. And I feel like the people who are deceived may not be the type who is really into it to care anyway. And so, you know, and I'm, I'm probably, uh, you know, just kind of finding a way to rationalize this a little bit because I, I just find it so strange that anybody would make these mistakes and just assume that that is the thing that they're watching. But I do know that they're very tricky with their marketing and it's gotten worse. Like Transformers, they released Transmorphers, things like that. I mean, it's just, it's kind of insane. I don't know. I, I I feel like there's a level that was happening in the in this period, kind of the 70s, 80s, where these sorts of ripoffs were coming out, but at least they were trying to do something uh, fun with it, right? I mean, in this case, we have an octopus, and then in the next movie we're talking about, we have piranhas. And so they're they're ripping it off, but they are kind of trying to shake it around a little bit. And even when we go back to something like Oh, what was it for a few dollars more? Uh, or no, Fistful mm-hmm. of Dollars was the the remake, uh, kind of the ripoff, I guess you would say, of of um, Kurosawa's movie. And same thing with Magnificent Seven. There were they they were changing things around enough to kind of do something really unique and interesting with it. And so I feel like I find that more interesting and more entertaining. And I'm getting a different property, even if I feel like there is a lot of ripoff elements within it. I feel when you get to that point where it's asylum and you're just blatantly trying to rip it off so much so that people are mistaking it for that property because they're just not paying attention. That's where I feel like it's running into what I would call an actual problem. Intent to deceive. I, I don't think this movie is that movie, honestly. Like, I feel like this movie is is actually the shortcoming is not that they were trying to deceive people and make a make a cheap movie. I think that this is a movie that just demonstrates uh, a shortcoming in filmmaking and storytelling. Yeah, the ability to actually craft a film <laughs> worth watching. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes, indeed. Uh, Stelvio Cipriani was the composer. Uh, also did uh, some scores for other similar Jaws ripoffs, The Great Alligator and Piranha 2, The Spawning. Um, So, you know, I think that is a a composer who works in that realm. And, you know, I was curious when I watched this, and I don't know if you were, but I was wondering, were they actually filming this in the U.S. or did they actually go to Italy to make this film? Um, Sure enough, they filmed it in the L.A. area, in Oceanside, Pismo Beach, and down in San Diego. I, I guess I was a little surprised too. I do want to make a point about you. You brought up the ages of these of these folks. You know, Shelley Winters fifty seven, John Huston seventy one. I'm watching this movie with my son, who's fourteen, and his first response. I mean, we're ten minutes into the movie. He says, "They're really old." And I said, yeah, well, I mean, it was a different time, and there are lots of of reasons. But generally, these were very talented actors, and people would 
pay to go see these people do their craft. He's like, "Mm, I'd like to see this made again with younger people. Wow. And it kind of hurt my heart. (laughs) You know, he's, Uh, he is of the age where he wants to see the things targeted to the 19 year old uh, male. And that's that all of that, obviously it with to everything, there is a season. Um, But, but we're also there. And I think that that shift that, that happened, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and now we are still sort of reaping the benefits of, I say in heavy air quotes, um, is, um, you know, I think it's it's interesting, the the body types, things that we appreciate more uh, in our blockbusters and our mockbusters, um, you know, things change. And he's he's of an era, for sure. I will say to that end, um, I, I appreciated that they were welcoming other body types. But wow, they really go into the fat shaming quite a bit in yeah, this film. And it was, it was odd. I was like, wow, they're really like being mean to Shelley Winters. And then to that, uh, there was a, a larger guy who is on the boat. Um, who, you know, he gets killed. And by the way, that was one of my favorite deaths because you just have two legs sticking straight up out of the water that made me laugh out loud that was was, that was was its own little fat shaming punchline right like his legs are the only thing that can stick up like a weeble wobble oh what about sequels and remakes when do we get octopus (laughs) 2 the ninth arm you know there unfortunately will not be a tentacoli 2 uh much too Mm. much too uh our uh, regret. I would, I would be curious to see, you know, like your son, I would actually be curious to see them do a new octopus, like a killer octopus movie. But I feel like people Starring have realized... Chris Evans. Yeah, right? Octo- Orca Whisperer. <laughs> Octopuses are too nice. I think people have realized they're really kind of gentle creatures and, and so probably smart. aren't going to do anything like this. So, yeah, incredibly yeah. smart. Um, okay, then maybe they didn't make a sequel because this one won all the awards already, and they thought there's nothing left to say. You'd think you'd think so, but no. Is that what happened? This film, uh, the, you know, this was early before there were things like the the raspberries and things like that. I have a feeling it would have some nominations for some awards if things like that did exist, but alas, yeah, they did not. So uh, yes, zero awards for this particular Well, and let's talk about the budget. How did Asinitis do at the box office? Asinitis' octo-horror cost $750,000 to make, which is about $3.2 million in today's dollars. The movie was released in Italy February 25th, 1977, then here in the States on June 15th, 1977, opposite A Bridge Too Far. Obviously, Star Wars had just opened a few weeks before and it was still dominating at the box office. But honestly, this film really had no chance to break into the top 10. Believe it or not, though, this film did end up making a profit. I could only find a blanket box office gross. I assume it's domestic and international, uh, but it is for $3 million, which is almost $12.7 million in today's dollars. That gives the movie an adjusted profit per finished minute of 93000 and a return on their investment of four times the budget. All in all, a profitable turn for this first in our series. I love that we're doing this series, even though we had just had the conversation that we had. This isn't a great movie, <laughs> but I had a blast watching it, right? I had a good time watching what they tried to do with this, with this thing. I do admit, I hope these movies get better over the course of our run. I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's head over to Flick Chart. Let's do it. Uh, 
Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart, it'll take you straight over to the flickchart database and this very film, and you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have Tentacles or Il Postino, The Postman. Mmm, I'm going to say Il Postino. <laughs> I will, too. I like how you sounded like you were not quite sure. It's there. a real toss-up. <laughs> it's like, yeah. which way will I go? <laughs> I would love to hear Pablo Neruda's poems about an octopus. Like, if he had had an octopus adventure off the coast of that little Italian island, think of the magic words that he could spin. He already wrote it. It's called, We Need a Tornado to Move This Boat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tentacles are Atlantic City. Atlantic City. Atlantic City, indeed. Tentacles are Bull Durham. <laughs> Bull Durham. Bull Durham, yes, indeed. Tentacles are next Friday. Ugh, the most problematic of that family. I know, and you know what? I'll give it to next Friday. <laughs> I will, too. <laughs> oh, Tentacles, oh, dear, dear. Tentacles are the edge. People used to call you killers. They used to call me that on the streets. Just another bit from classic tentacles, oratory to orca. That's right. Uh, I'm going to give it to whatever tentacles wasn't. The edge. Yeah, I'll no, I'll give, give it to the, the edge. edge. Tentacles yeah. are Coogan's bluff. <laughs> How far are we fallen? I'll give it to Coogan's bluff. I will too. Tentacles or Meek's cutoff. I will give it to Meek's uh, cutoff. Meek's cutoff. Yeah. Tentacles are Tony Monero. <laughs> Your personal favorite. It is here that we arrive at trouble uh, for. <laughs> As it turns out, for Tony Monero, I will. I'll give it to Tentacles. I will give it to Tony Monero. All right, let's do it. A lot more things challenging in that film. All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. Rock. Scissors. Rock. Tentacles takes it. Uh tentacles crushes it tentacles or oceans 11 the 1960 frank sinatra vehicle that wasn't great it wasn't are you gonna give it to oceans i'm i'm torn i'm gonna give it to I'm oceans it, it. you know it's it's not great but it still has yeah. All right. elements that i prefer over tentacles that puts tentacles in spot 470 on our chart 470 out of 471 i can't ask anybody else so I'm asking you to help me kill this octopus. Ode to Orca. What are you thinking, sharks? <laughs> no, I'm thinking giant, giant octopus. octopus. <laughs> wow, that, there, was a, there was a leap I wasn't expecting. He happened to have seen the title of the film, so he knew. He did, thank God he, he knew what was coming. <laughs> Mommy, you're plump. There's more to love. I, um... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, rough. Um, so I, I this if it's it was rough ranking uh, for me personally. How to do on your list? It didn't fall quite so far, but it did fall far. Um, well, <laughs> when I say it didn't fall quite so far, yeah, mine landed because uh, we landed in spot four seventy out of four seventy one. That puts it at basically a zero percent on our chart. Personally, yeah. mine went to forty four forty two out of forty four eighty, which is a one percent. On my personal chart. Wow. What is it? Can you give, do you have the uh, above and below on that one? So it's just below 
the uh, <laughs> classic George Burns uh, age swapping comedy, 18 Again. And, uh, okay. and just above uh, the film that I really, I know some people love, I really hated it, Dancer in the Dark. Okay, interesting. That's an interesting trio of films. Right? Right there. Uh, mine, Andy, Tentacles did something that I think you will be happy with. It actually moved some movies up in my list. And by some movies, I mean Next Friday and 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> That's right. Tentacles fell to number 1468 out of 1468. It is the last movie on my list Wow! right now. Wow. It is the bottom. And so it should be a zero star. It's zero percent. And, um, you know, it's uh, I don't it's probably in there if I go by the algorithm over on uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel. Yeah, it's I mean, it's probably right in in the running for for zero zero stars uh, <laughs> uh i don't know what'd you what'd you decide you know it's i, I enjoy it more than one percent i ended up giving it one star so i don't think it's a great movie but i did find elements that i thought were actually pretty entertaining even though i will say the biggest sin that the movie commits is that for the most part it's pretty boring it's kind of, we didn't mention that but yeah. it's kind of a dull a dull pretty film. slow but there are things that i thought were kind of fun that i did enjoy and that made me laugh so i'm giving it one star but i'm actually giving it a heart See, I, I could give it, I feel like, can I even give it a zero stars on Letterboxd? I don't even think I can. No, half, um, I mean, half star technically is the I'll, I'll give it a half star. And uh, I'll, I, I think your, your final point, ironically, the last one that we didn't talk about is it might be its greatest sin. All of the threads that we've been talking about lead to this, that when you don't have characters you can follow, when you don't have any sort of narrative, emotional narrative that you can you can follow along and and make you care about, it makes you not really want to get through the slow stuff. And even when we get to the Quint speech on the boat um, <laughs> with the two expert oceanographers <laughs> and orca trainers talking about their, um, you know, his uh, experience uh, at sea, it's just a snooze. So I'm not even going to give it a heart, but I'm going to know in my heart that there are things I could watch in this movie again. It's a half star and a nothing. That's why it's getting a heart for me, because I could go back and watch the baby scene again. Uh, like, there are things that I could go That's look like at. That's like three minutes out of this movie. I know. Movie. You know what? Don't make me take this heart go away. To a you- go, I, go to a YouTube just, clip. The baby uh, is gone YouTube clip. And satisfy yourself. Give that yeah. five stars in a heart. There's something awful about like these awful creature features. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, now I want to take my heart away because you're just you're sucking the joy out of the room. I don't. My, my, I don't <laughs> take responsibility for that. I think uh, uh, Asinitis takes responsibility. He for does. That. He does. No, it's it's All a right. terrible, terrible movie. But um, but it did have me smiling periodically. It did have me smiling totally. Yeah, absolutely. So, there you go. Uh, that that gives does it a, take us. That gives it a three quarter of a star <laughs> over on our Letterboxd, which will round up to a star, one full star with a heart. So that's where we'll sit over on Letterboxd.com. Where where do we go from here, though? Because I think I'm optimistic uh, that we're moving up. I sure sure hope so. We are jumping to a film that I only saw once, and I'm actually curious to revisit again. It's just the following year. It is Joe Dante, who I love as a filmmaker, and it is his 1978 film that he made with Roger Corman, Piranha, the film that Steven Spielberg says the best of the Jaws ripoffs. <laughs> I I saw Piranha 3D and enjoyed it way more than I should have. It was a pretty silly movie, yeah. 
I go in biased. Let's just say that. Yeah. So it's out there. Well, out I, there I will throw this out. This not only does it have Joe Dante directing it, but John Sayles wrote the screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I just I'm so curious to revisit this one and see is there anything worth <laughs> saving here? I guess we'll find out uh, when we come back next week when the movie ends. Their conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, yeah, I'm back to Amazon because you know what? Unfortunately, Andy, uh, no kids have seen this movie. It doesn't even exist over at Common Sense Media, and I'm really disappointed. I because... think you need to rectify that. Have your own kid get, yes. act, get his act I'm together. I'm going to have Come my on. son write some Common Sense Media reviews yeah. about these old movies. Anyway, I went back to Amazon, and I've, I've got one for you that I think will give you a sense of perspective. I like perspective. We, we talked about, uh, you know, John Huston, 71 years old, nearing the end of his career. Shelley Winters at the toward the end of her career. We've got some real seasoned talent in this movie. And uh, here's Yvonne from Texas, who says, good old sci fi. Good show. Big stars that were just beginning their big careers. Company wow. ships fast. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, just beginning. I got some movies to show this you, is, Yvonne. <laughs> we welcome to movie night. That Henry Fonda. Wow. I hope he's in more. We're going to do the Benjamin Button Henry Fonda film series. Holy cow. Welcome to On Golden Pond. <laughs> and... <laughs> oh, my. All right. What'd you I, get? I've got a, a five star by Nancy, who uh, this was German. There were interestingly quite a number of reviews from people over in Germany for this film and all five stars. I'm not exactly sure what's going on with that particular situation. Wow. In Germany, this film was called The Polyp, which I assume is the octopus in German. The Polyp, the beast with the arms of death, which honestly, I think is a much better title. I love it. And it uses arms properly, Pete. I just would like to point that out. Wow. Nancy says, my favorite film as a teen. Very nice film. I looked for it for a long time and finally found it after years. The film is exciting, sad, but also funny in certain places. A film for those who don't like it too hard. The Polyp, The Beast <laughs> with the Arms of Death. VHS. Might be a loss in translation there, but... I, I, hope, I hope so. <laughs> Nancy? Nancy's Thanks, a fan. Amazon. <laughs> Did you mean Melanie Haver? <laughs> Audrey Farber? <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. 
and their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.